0: You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Well, we've been, um, uh, just last week actually, um, having a little bit of a, a look at um, uh, the nation of Israel and their, their leader, Joshua, as they were crossing the Jordan River into what was the Promised Land. And we've been looking at this, this topic of laying hold of God's promises Um, And in particular, we haven't quite got to Joshua, Israel, or the Promised Land, but we're actually looking at the way that they were prepared through 40 years of wandering under the leadership of Moses. And and there's a lot of material which gives us a little bit of a tip as to just the importance of Moses in the life of Israel. But in particular, we have um, three particular passages, one in Psalms and two in Deuteronomy, and uh, they accord often the, um, the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, the song of Moses, and the blessing of Moses. And the blessing of Moses is actually tribe by tribe until right towards the end, there's this general blessing for all of um, the people of God. So we've been having a little bit of a look at that and the relevance of that for today. Of course, we are not the nation Israel, but we are the people of God, and God's promises Um, are for us today and very, very important. And in particular, I guess they can be important as we look around our world and we see that times are changing, things are changing. And in fact, it doesn't matter how stable life might feel for you, the truth is that at some point or another, those, um, those sands are going to shift. Many, many years ago, I think it must have been year seven or eight science, uh, or geography actually, I, I remember it because it was a particular moment in which I may have actually been paying attention in class, and in those moments weren't frequent. But the teacher was talking about um, sands shifting, and in particular, um, the impact of constructive versus destructive waves on our beaches, and I think it was the word beach that got my attention. I suddenly looked up, beach. And, uh, and, and I wanted to, to actually know about this. In, in winter, um, we tend to experience destructive waves. The waves are basically eroding the sand, and, and during the, the summer months, um, the waves are actually rebuilding those sands, and, and they are constructive waves and pushing the sand back up the beach, which is perfect. Hey, just ready for summer. Isn't God good? He's got it all planned out, lots of nice sandy beaches for, for the summer. And so this phenomenon is always going on. Now, one winter, we happened to visit a bit of a favorite beach town of ours called Seaspray. And the, the destructive waves had been doing their work, and they had totally undermined the Surf Life Saving Club to the point where its, its concrete foundation was, um, was actually hanging over the top of, of the dune and dangerously so. Part of it had already, except for the steel reinforcing, had cracked and was hanging over. And, and so amidst lots of um, helicopters and news reporters and uh, um, announcements by the government for state funding and so forth, um, um, we happened to, to look at the impact of these destructive waves. Well, this summer, we were back at Seaspray, and I was looking at the boardwalk, the beautiful new surf life-saving club that had been built because of that government funding and the amazing boardwalk that um, um, we look at each summer subsequent to that. And, and I guess I had I, I think, been uh, thinking about the impact of the waves that winter, and, and I, I don't know if you can see it or not, but but something looked odd to me. And it seemed to me that it was a little under-engineered, and and they may not have um, totally taken into consideration the impact of the the waves. It's a pretty pretty amazing force um, when the sands are shifting. And it's a great image for life, because the truth is that, as I say, it doesn't matter how stable things are right now, in life, at some point or another, your circumstances are going to change and perhaps in such a way that will will leave you um, feeling very discombobulated, very um, ungrounded. The life of Moses and the story of his leading God's people is a wonderful example or picture, if you like, of how to stay grounded, the secret to being grounded when the the sands are shifting, and that's what we wanted to have a little bit of a a look at today. One of the things I noticed... um, in the, in the life of Moses was that he allowed his God view to shape his worldview. We sometimes talk about it in t- those terms, but, but essentially, um, his view of God actually prescribed how he viewed the world. Now, sociologists would try and turn that around and say that, that our view of the world is often um, determined, actually, uh, uh, or, or determines our view of God. It's a more of a social phenomenon than it is a, a spiritual one. But as Christians, we believe that, no, it's the other way around. Our view of God does and, and should actually determine our view of the world. It should flow It should flow that way. And it seems to be very, very true of Moses. Um, Paul he, Hebert, an um, anthropologist, a Christian who has tried to provide... Missionaries with insights about about culture over the years came with with um, um, this model called the the floor of the excluded middle. Now I've changed the language a bit because some of it's a little bit technical, but it breaks culture up into three dimensions. And stick with me for a moment, and we'll we'll see how this impacts Psalm ninety. But but life has different dimensions. Starting at the at the bottom level, firstly there is the natural dimension, and this is the the empirical and seen realm, the the here and the now. This is, well, this is the natural world as we understand it. This is this is the things that we can touch and the smells that we can smell, and it's and and, and modern-day Western science loves it. But you know what? In every culture, there are folk sciences. It doesn't matter whether whether you believe there is something beyond the natural realm, everybody is aware of the natural realm. And in Western society, perhaps we are only aware of the natural realm, but that's the that's the first layer. Now, jump the middle for a moment and go with me to the top layer. Um, Hebert points out that there is also a supernatural dimension to life, and many people, actually, even in Australia, believe in this supernatural dimension. Uh, Australians often describe themselves as secular. Uh, they, you know, there are many, many very vocal voices. Uh, as voices tend to be, but very, very a number of vocal people who talk about the fact that there's nothing else to life. There is only the natural realm, and that's it. Um, they would say or describe themselves as atheists, and and say there is there is no other god or gods or supernatural or anything else. That realm simply does not exist. But the truth is, statistically speaking, most people believe in God or some sort of higher being most Australians, upwards of 70%, believe that there is this, this um, other dimension, the supernatural dimension. Now, this is the unseen realm. This is, this is the realm of things like a heaven or a, or a hell, and, and this, is, this is the realm of something outside our immediate time, not just space, but time. This is the, the realm of eternity, where things exist and transcend time. And then, Interestingly, and this is this is perhaps Hebert's um, contribution: is there is this middle realm, and this middle realm is the faith realm. This is that dimension in which we we can only understand the unseen and the non-empirical by essentially um, practicing faith, stepping out in faith. That's how we understand God and, and who he is and so forth. This is where the unseen meets the seen. This is where the otherworldly meets this world. This is, the, this is the place in which we understand that supernatural powers somehow can impact on natural powers as well. Now, this is, this is modern day. Christian anthropology. Surely, this doesn't have anything to do with Moses, right? Well, long before Paul Hebert sort of articulated this model, it's interesting that this, the spiritual leader of Israel, this was what Moses was, was teaching Israel. He had the job over some 40 years of preparing the nation of Israel to cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land. The crossing of the Jordan River was, as it were, part two of the Exodus. Part one was, was being delivered from, from slavery and bondage in Egypt. There was this time of wandering, but then there was a time of crossing the Jordan and entering into God's promises. And that's what we want to try and understand tonight. What does it mean to lay hold of God's promises? The very first part of that is, well, there must be a foundation. And so for some 40 years, Moses, the leader and spiritual leader of Israel, was laying that foundation in place. What was that foundation? Well, let's have a look. And we find it in the prayer of Moses in in Psalm Psalm 90. And the the Psalm teaches us a number of things. But firstly, it teaches us that there is this this base um, realm, this natural dimension there are such a thing as our earthbound and mortal lives. This is what Hebert described as the natural dimension, the, the seen, the here and the, the now. But this is where Moses talks about it in Psalm, uh, Psalm 90, verses 3 to 6. He says, You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. For you, a thousand years... Are as a passing day, as brief as a few night hours, you sweep people away like dreams that disappear. They are like grass that springs up in the morning. In the morning it blooms and flourishes, but by evening it is dry and it is withered. It kind of puts into perspective, doesn't it, um, who we are in our mortal lives. He goes on in verses 10 to 12 70 years are given to us, some even live to 80, but even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we fly away. Who can comprehend the power of your anger? Your wrath is as awesome as the fear you deserve. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. It's a sobering plea. It's a part of Moses' prayer that acknowledges our our ordinary, mundane, here and now, mortal lives. James Sire um, wrote a book called *The Universe Next Door*, and he and he basically in that traces a number of the 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 basic worldviews of. Of particularly Western culture, and in it, he actually traces the the decline of of Western culture as it as it changes its worldview. It started off as as theistic; we believe in a God, and then it and then it moves and it shifts to de- deism, and that is well, yeah, there's a God somewhere. I mean, how else do you explain all of this? But I don't think he cares anymore. I think he's busy somewhere else. From deism, very natural sort of a a move to existentialism, which is do you know what we were wrong about God. It's just us. It's just here. It's just now. And the only meaning to life is the meaning that you give it. From existentialism, it was a very very short step to nihilism. And nihilism, you know, as as it suggests me, well, is saying the total sum of the meaning of life is. Nil. Zero. A very, very sad place to be. It's probably the extension of existential despair. It's there is no meaning to life. And many, many nilists, um, sadly, end up uh, uh, in mental asylums or actually just taking their life because life has no meaning. It's a kind of a sad decline in in the West. And if that's all there was, if that was it, as Thoreau said, that we are all ultimately living lives of quiet desperation, well, it would be pretty pitiful, wouldn't it? And sadly, there are many in our society who thinks that that is the case. But not so back in the day of Israel, not just for Israel, but even the surrounding nations. They believed that that wasn't the only dimension of life. They believed very much in something else. But here's the interesting thing. The Canaanite gods, the, the gods who were small g-gods, the gods who seemed to be worshipped in the promised land that they were about to enter. They belonged to this dimension. They did not transcend it. Therefore, they were affected by the things which affect this dimension. So those gods, those small g-gods, belonged to this dimension, and this is where Moses introduces Israel to the one true God, a God who transcends it all. And in his psalm, he goes on and and helps them to understand there's another dimension here. And you are not worshipping a God who belongs to this lower dimension, this this, this, um, normal sort of dimension of life, but this supernatural dimension of life. This is a God who belongs to the unseen realm, and, and this is where we read about him. In, in verses 1 and 2, we read, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is radical. This is new. This is very, very different. And Israel had to nail this one down. Before you go into the land where you could be influenced by other gods who just belong to the natural dimension and aren't aren't gods at all, before you go there, you need this foundation. You need to understand there is a God who transcends all of this. If you don't understand that, actually, you'll very soon be in trouble. How important is it for us as well? to believe in a God who transcends our everyday existence. Think about it. How easy is it to get caught up in just the mundane, the everyday, perhaps even to be caught, dare I say it, starting to worship the small G gods of Western civilization, of money and of self-image. I reckon... uh, I try to be more regular in my attendance at the gym, but I reckon there's, a, there's some small G gods in the gym, and there's mirrors there for you to look at them if you want to. Um, there's, there's so many, so many little gods of Western civilization that we can get caught up worshiping if we're not careful. We can become preoccupied with work and relationships and so many other things that we need we need to understand there is a God who transcends it all because those small g gods are a trapping and they will lead you into, into bondage. Moses is making sure that Israel is prepared for going into a foreign territory where it will be tempting to believe in the gods of the natural dimension. And he's saying, no, you need to understand there is a God who transcends all of that. And he lives entirely in a different dimension and he is... Firstly, he is eternal. He transcends time. Before before the mountains were born and he brought forth the whole world, he was from everlasting to everlasting. In the Song of Moses, we're looking at that last week, in Deuteronomy 32, we read more about him, this amazing God who transcends the natural dimension. When the Most High assigned lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number in his heavenly court. Here is God deciding the boundaries of the nations and and so forth, but from his heavenly court, he does so. Look now, I myself am he. There is no other God but me. I am the one who kills and gives life. I am the one who wounds and heals. And no one can be rescued from my powerful hand. We need to be reminded of a God who transcends the mundane and transcends the ordinary and the natural, natural order. A couple of contemporary voices who assist in this is one is Ted Decker. Some of you may have read some of his, his fictional books. If you haven't, do so. It will do your mind in. Um, he loves to, loves to mess with your mind. But he wrote one book of nonfiction, and in it he was exploring this question. As a Christian himself, who as a missionary kid, actually, who explored Christianity but then sort of fell away a little bit from the faith, who made a whole lot of money and then lost a whole lot of money, and then sort of came back to God and surrounded, as he was surrounded himself with lots of other Christians, he was asking himself this question, why do the lives of Christians not look all that different to the lives of non-Christians at times? Why is that? What's going on there? Why... Why aren't we different? If we worship a God that transcends the mundane, why is life so mundane? And his answer is he believed we've lost sight of eternity. We are so caught and bound by the here and now, we're consumed by the pressures of life, and we get caught up in thinking, this is it. And we build our our castles and our lives around the fact that this is all there is. We lose sight of the fact that this is a very, very small part of eternity. We belong to a God and a king who transcends time. Another voice who, who points out that we worship a God who transcends the here and the now is is Ian McCormack, and he's a pastor in the UK now. But many, many years ago, he was a, a Kiwi from New Zealand. At about 24 years of age in 1982, he was touring the world to find himself. Not a Christian at that time, he found himself in Mauritius, and he was diving for lobster there. And they were doing that at night. And and whilst whilst diving, um, he he felt the sting of, of something on his arm. and And it turns out later that um, five box jellyfish had, um, had had scraped by his arm, and he was stung by them. Now, just one is enough to kill a person. Although the, the the toxicity affects different people in different ways, but he was in a bad way. There was no explanation for why he would live. In fact, when he came out, and the the locals who were with him, you know, out fishing for lobsters, realized what had happened. They were so scared they they basically got him back to the beach and abandoned him. He stopped a a taxi driver to to try and get some help, but the taxi driver thought that he was drunk and and left him. Finally, somebody got him to a hospital. They realized what had happened, but by now, you know, this was over the 15 minutes time that normally you needed to get treatment, well over that, and, and he was pretty much given up for dead. They tried to treat him, but life was slipping away from him. And as things got, he calls it, as things got darker and darker, he believes that, that he actually died. Now, he believes this because he had actually been, um, all signs of life had disappeared at a point, and he woke up later in the morgue with someone someone uh, cutting into his foot, you know, with a blade. He's, whoa, you know... And, um, um, and he was in the morgue, and the, the response of the staff was they just looked at him like he was a ghost, like, what, what is this? But, but in that time where um, he felt his life slipping away, he said, at first, it was, it was totally dark, and I was trying to work out, am I in my body or am I outside of my body? He's trying to work out, you know, what's going on here? total darkness and and he could hear screaming and things it was the the most terrifying thing but then but then light started to appear more light and 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 he walked into the light he seemed to be able to approach it and he felt this this light actually pierce him it, it was like it it shone through him and it and it revealed everything about him and he felt ashamed and he felt dirty and he and he felt unwell. He didn't know the word at that time because he wasn't a Christian, but unholy. Now, later on, he would find at this precise time in New Zealand, his mother, who was a Christian, was prompted to pray for him. And she was praying for him. And, and in the ambulance, before he got to the hospital, he realized what had happened. He'd been stung. His life was slipping away. He didn't know if there was a God or not. But in the ambulance before he got to the hospital, he decided now's a good time to find out. And he didn't know how to pray, but he remembered one prayer that his mum had taught him, the Lord's Prayer. And he prayed that in the ambulance. So now he's in the hospital. Life is slipping away. He's walking towards this light. And he's not sure if he, if he should be or not. Is it safe to or not? He, he is aware of the incredible power of this light shining through him, and then his touch, he said it was like it was warm, like it, it just warmed him through, and, and suddenly he could feel waves of love just flowing over him. He's drawn more and more to this, and suddenly he, he started to see a, a person walking out of the light, and he believes that this was Jesus Christ. And so a conversation starts to take place, am I in my body or am I out of my body? Are you God, and is it safe to come come close to you? And, and from this experience, he understands that, that he had been born again, spiritually speaking. The spirit within him had been born at the moment that he prayed in the ambulance. And now God was accepting him and welcoming him into his presence. But he looked back behind him towards the darkness, and he was wondering about a A misspent life, a a life in which basically he lived for himself, and and he realized that he had a unique opportunity, one that most people would never have, and that was understanding now that he was born of God, that he was a a new creature, understanding that he was in relationship with God, he would have the opportunity to go back. One thing troubled him, and that was that, that his mother didn't know that he had become a Christian. He wanted to tell her. And so God allowed him to, to come back into his body, to be, to be raised from the dead, as it were, and that's what took place in the mortuary. He notes this, and you can, you can go to that website at the bottom and you can, you can hear his story. But he says this, over the years, some people have questioned my experience, and so I'd like to reiterate this scripture, 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in his body, I do not know, or out of his body, I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man whether in his body or apart from his body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. And when Ian tries to make sense of that experience, that he calls it not near-death experience, but after-death experience, when he tries to make sense of that, This is his understanding that he had left his body. He had died for 15, 20 minutes. That's certainly what the doctors, nurses and hospital staff believed. But he was given permission to go back and he was raised from the dead as rarely but sometimes happens for a special purpose. And and ever since he has been telling the story, he's been telling his testimony and still pastors a church in the UK today. Such a story or a testimony is a vivid reminder of the reality of this upper dimension, this supernatural dimension that transcends this world, space and time. This time that somehow outside our understanding of time, there is this thing called eternity and our God belongs to to that realm. And Moses, intriguing, isn't it? Was setting in place the foundations for the nation of Israel, helping them to understand that the God that they worship doesn't just belong to this natural dimension. He belongs to a supernatural dimension outside of time and space. Yes, even then, those aspects of their theology was being shaped. This is not just New Testament stuff. This was Moses, the spiritual leader of Israel, helping them to come to grips to this so that they would not lose their way when they entered the promised land. And we know from the song of Moses that didn't go so well. But here are the foundations. But then lastly, here is is a wonderful truth. There is a middle dimension. There is a God that transcends the natural realm, but... He isn't just distant, like the deists believe, distant, way off up there in heaven, somewhere, unconcerned with the plight of mankind back in this natural dimension. He is a God who is near. And the word for that is imminent. He is, we talk about his imminence. And this is what Hebert describes as the, as the excluded middle, the, the the middle realm. This is where. This is where the supernatural dimension meets the natural dimension. The lines are gone because our God crosses over. He bridges the gap. This is the dimension that requires faith. This is, this is where the, the unseen meets the seen. The otherworldly meets the worldly. And this is where there are many world faiths, I guess, from a secular, anthropological point of view, but from a Christian point of view. This is where God himself bridges the gap. He is not disinterested. He transcends our circumstances, but he knows exactly what you are going through. And he comes to meet you there. And he comes to help ground you when the sands are shifting. He is a God who is near. Moses points this out in his prayer in verses 13 to 15, talking about a distance that seems to have been created between the people of God and God. He says, oh Lord, come back to us. How long will you delay? Take pity on your servants and then anticipating better times when the presence of God is imminent, when God has bridged the gap and he's with us once more, oh, satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love so that we may sing for joy to the end of our lives. Give us gladness in proportion to our former misery. Replace the evil years with good. And back in the song of Moses, we we read about that sad state in which they had They had moved, you know, the nation of Israel had moved away from from the God who who transcends the natural realm. Um, Talking about that, you know, they offered sacrifices to demons, which are not God at all, to gods, little gods that they had not known before, the sort that you might find in Aldi, for instance. To new gods that have just recently arrived, special, you know, latest god. Oh, they'd gone, they'd gone for the latest gods, the nice ones, the ones that were on sale, the ones that were going cheap and for a reason. The gods that their ancestors had never heard of, because they didn't have Aldi back then. But then in the blessing of Moses, look how this changes. He introduces them to this thought. Ultimately, you will discover. You will find you don't have to give yourself to the small G gods of this world, the natural order. No, your God transcends that. The only true God. There is no one like the God of Israel. I love this bit. He rides across the heavens to help you. Do you like that? In your time of need, he rides across the heavens to help you. Across the skies in majestic splendor, the eternal God is your refuge. And his everlasting arms are under you. He drives out the enemy before you. He cries out, destroy them. Then in verse 29, how blessed you are, O Israel. Who else is like you? A people saved by the Lord. That's interesting there. The verse starts out, there is no one like God. And then it finishes with, and there's no one like you, if you worship that God. There is no one like God. He is unique. And if you worship him, well, there's no one like you either. You are unique. The people of God are unique because they worship a God who is unique. there's no one like him and there's no one like the people of God. Here is God's blessing upon his people and, and Moses declares it as such. I love that I love that part in, in the book of Acts sweeping sweeping ahead to a time that Moses could only anticipate a time where where God had crossed that gap from the the, um, supernatural realm to the natural realm in a miraculous way by sending his son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God bridged that gap. And we read in the New Testament that he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Absolutely. There's a there's a story in Acts chapter four. Peter and John have been imprisoned. I love the story. But there's this moment. Well, we can't get into all of it, but there's this moment, they're before the Sanhedrin, and in particular Sadducees. And they'd been imprisoned be, because essentially they'd been preaching about the resurrection from the dead, and the Sadducees didn't believe in the res- resurrection from the dead, which is why they were sad, you see. And so there they are, and they've imprisoned um, uh, the guys, and now and they've brought them before them, and they are, there's a boldness and a courageousness to the way that they are, they are talking to the Pharisees. And, and in that moment, they make this observation that these men were just ordinary, unschooled men, but... They had been with Jesus. They had been with the transcendent God. That changed everything. And I wonder if it might have just gone through their mind just briefly. Peter and John, when they heard that, you know, that these men had been with Jesus, when they heard that said of them, which is later recorded in Acts by Luke When it was said of them, did they actually correct that in their minds and say, no, even better than that? We have not just been with Jesus. Jesus lives within us through his Holy Spirit. Jesus now resides within, and that's the difference that you see. God has bridged the gap once and for all, and there is no imminence like the Spirit of God dwelling within. I I wonder if that went through their minds. So what is the secret to being grounded when the, when the sands are shifting? What is it? How can we be, be grounded and not affected by the changing circumstances of our life and our world? Quite simply, and Moses captured it right there in the first verse. Verse 1, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. Make God your abode. Abide in him and let God abide in you. That is how to be grounded when the sands are shifting. Uh, I shared a story last week about our, our time on the doulos, and, and uh, we as a family and four children were, were uh, living in the belly of a metal whale for you know, some three years. And uh, it was, you know, about 350 other people on board. And, you know, um, there are times where it was a rather peculiar life, to be quite honest, and challenging. Um, well, for definitely singles and all of us. But the more I think back to that time, the, the more I admire Bron and, and the way that, that, she, that she mothered our four children in those circumstances. Everything was always shifting. We were never in the same place. You'd go to work one day, come home, and you'd be in a different country. Uh, sometimes you would, you would go to sleep and be in a different country, we always going, sailing from port to port. Um, often, the kids would, would go to school in one country, and they would come home from school in another. And um, I remember when we went to the US, um, finally we were sort of in one place, and Joel, for his first day of school, was had his school bag on, and he was ready to go off to school, and uh, he just had one question. And that was going off to school. He built this association up in his head. What country am I going to today? And we sort of, sorry. What country am I going to today? well, you're in America. You, you, you're staying in America. But in his mind, when he went to school, it means he was going to change country. And so we had this strange life. Um, one of the, the Scott children, Emily, but I won't mention her name, she had a perspective on this as well. Um, her perspective as a, as a young two-year-old was, was that um, somehow the ship always stayed still, but countries came and went and, uh, oh, where's that country going? And uh, what a fantastic perspective. But it kind of shaped for the children on board the ship. It kind of shaped them in a, in a unique way. And it had some fun aspects to it. And sometimes it was, it was kind of difficult. I remember on one occasion, uh, Bron wanted to, to do an ET. She wanted to phone home. It was her father's birthday. She simply wanted to say, happy birthday, Dad. And, uh, and so this was before, you know, mobile phones and so forth. Oh, there might have been a couple around, but, but you know, we, you couldn't exchange SIM cards easily in those days and things like that. The technology just wasn't there. So, nope, had to do the old thing of dropping coins into a, into a public phone booth. And, and so we're in Japan, we think. Um, we can't really remember, but, uh, but Bron just wanted to um, leave the ship go down the, the gangway. Um, she only had to walk four meters and there was this phone booth there, but she needed coins. So firstly, she um, she had to pick up our pocket money. We got paid $20 a month. So she went to the, the little bank, I guess, or kiosk on board the ship and to get her pocket money and she got that, but then it was closing. And she, she now had US dollar, but still no coins had to go to lunch and so forth. Straight after lunch, she she went to the place on the ship where you could change a US dollar into local currency, and she got it, but she still didn't have coins. So I think from there, she had to go somewhere else to actually change the local currency into coins. And after about a two or three hour process, um, she finally had the coins in her hand. So finally, she headed down. And it was kind of important, I guess, to be able to ring her dad, be Because her folks were missing us, like really missing us. And and that was weighing heavily on bronze. So she's got the coins in hand. She heads down the gangway. And she walks the four meters over to where the phone booth is. And there's nothing there. So thinking she's going a bit mad, she's looking around and thinking, whoa, wait on, did did I come down a different gangway? Is it a a different one? What's going on? And she's like, oh, sometimes, you know, the ship will move berth, even though we're not moving port. We've got to go this way or that way for another ship coming in. So surely that's what happened. You don't always know when that happens. But but she looks around, nope, nothing. And uh, then in the distance, she sees this little pickup, this ute driving along, and on the back, it's got a telephone booth strapped on. And it drives off into the distance. And apparently what had happened was that uh, because we were sailing um, later that day, they'd packed up the telephone booth. It was a little portable one, and, and, and off it went. And so clutching her coins, she just thought to herself, oh, God, how hard can this be? I just want to ring my dad and say happy birthday. It, it had its frustrations. And I admire her, as I say, all the more looking back on those years and thinking how she raised the family and and looked after four young children over a period of three years in what we called the belly of the whale. And I guess, how did she do it? It was probably along these lines. Yes, the doulos, the ship was our house, but we had had to learn To make God our home. And when things are constantly shifting, it's the only way in which you can stay grounded. It's the only way in which you can find your peace and find your joy and experience truly everything that you were made to experience. Make God your home. Make him your abode. Abide in him and experience the abiding presence of God in you. It will ground you no matter how much those sands shift. Let's pray. And before rushing into the prayer, I want to Just take a moment while your eyes are closed and you enter his presence. I want to invite you to... Contemplate this God as described in Moses' prayer. He had learnt as chief among nomads, a man who had spent many, many years wondering that no matter where he was, God was his home. And you may feel very alone at times. You may feel like a foreigner and a stranger, and you may feel displaced. But our God is not distant. He does transcend our circumstances. He is not subject to them. But he is not far away. He draws near to you and he understands you and he sees you and he wants to be known by you. He's just waiting for the invitation for you to say, come. To draw near to him. To enter into his presence. That presence which transcends the mundane and the ordinary. A presence which transcends the natural realm. He comes near to you and He wants to make His home in you, whatever your circumstances. And if God has made his home in a person, no matter how how much the sands shift, that person is not a nomad. That person has truly found their home. They have come home to the one true God. They have been born again. They have entered into eternity, eternal life. And that God can be discovered afresh this evening, and he can be discovered by you. Just invite him in. Lord Jesus, we want to welcome you into our lives our ordinary, mundane, mortal lives. We want to welcome your presence and thank you that you usher in your life. You said that you are the light of the world. That light is the life of all mankind. You said that you are the resurrection and the life. You give us new life. Thank you, Jesus. You said that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to your Father except through you. So you are the gate. You are the way in which we can come to the Father. Thank you. We enter through you, through your death and resurrection. Thank you, Jesus. You cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. You bridge the gap. You usher us in to eternal life. We praise you and we thank you. And we thank you that that presence will go with us. Wherever we go this week, your presence within us will ground us no matter how much the sands shift. You dwell within for all eternity. What a beautiful thing that is. Lord, we love you. We welcome you. We praise you and we bless you. We celebrate who you are and we give you a thanks for being with us tonight and being within us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.